this is one of those passages where um, at one point in the sermon, we're really going to need to take a look at some of the precise wording uh, that is used in the passage. So uh, I would very much encourage you, uh, if you have a Bible, to, to just have it, have it with you because we want to be careful to study God's word accurately um, and to properly understand it. Uh, we don't want to use God's word as just uh, something we look at and, and find inspiration from, just kind of feel like, what does this mean to me? We want to know what God means and what God says, because what God means and God says is always better than what we're going to come up with uh, just by following our own feelings. So let's give attention to God's word. We're going to begin at the very end of Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 2 is after the Spirit of God has been poured out on the day of Pentecost, and and the disciples and the followers, the close followers of Jesus, 120 people in all, were, uh, were blessed with the Spirit of God, and they began to prophesy and announce the mighty things of God in a group, a crowd gathered around, a crowd of Jews from all around the world that had come into Jerusalem for the the festival days, gathered to see what was going on, and Peter addresses this this crowd of Jews. And what he essentially says is, here's what's happening. God's promises from the Old Testament are being fulfilled because Jesus of Nazareth is the promised king, the king that God promised would come, the son of David who would come and make all things right. He is the true king, and God has proven this by raising him from the dead. Jesus, the one you crucified, God has raised from the dead, and he's been exalted as king and has poured out his life-giving spirit, and you're seeing the manifestation of that life-giving spirit uh, being poured out. That's what's happening here. And he ends his sermon with verse 36 that we will begin our reading with and then note the people's response and what Peter says for them to do. So Peter ends his sermon this way. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Lord, Bless us to understand your word, to understand what is happening here and what it means for us and for us to come to a greater understanding of the greatness of your grace. 
in how we can be people who know that our sins are forgiven and we've been blessed, even we've been blessed with the Holy Spirit. We pray this, Lord, in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Well, you note our passage kicks off this morning with a very, very important question. What shall we do? It's the kind of question that's asked in a moment of crisis. When your, your well-being, your safety, your, your future hangs in the balance. A moment of crisis. When your world is collapsing. When all hope seems to be cut off. When the doctor walks into the room and says, it's cancer. You ask the question, what can we do? What can we do? It's not only just a good question, it's the only question, it's the only question you can ask when you are cornered and you see no way out. What should we do? What can we do? And the the answer to that question in those moments of crisis, when that's the only question you can ask, the answer to the question points you to either life or death. It spells either life or death. And that's the situation that those who were gathered here at Pentecost are in after hearing Peter's sermon. They are struck with conviction because they know they are in a situation of crisis. And that's what we start to notice this morning. The people's conviction and crisis because of their their guilt. As I mentioned right before our reading, Peter had just announced and proven that Jesus, the one that they crucified, was the true and enthroned ruling king. The one that God had promised in the Old Testament, the son of David that would come and make all things new. The son of David that would come and be the king that brings uh, salvation and life is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is that king enthroned in all authority and they had crucified him. Peter made this point repeatedly throughout his sermon. He he says it at the very, very beginning of the sermon. This Jesus delivered up according to the plan and and foreknowledge of God You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up. He starts that way. He ends that way, doesn't he? That's why we started our reading in 36, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so they are cut to the heart by this fact And they ask, what shall we do? It's the only thing they can ask. They're traitors. They killed the king. And they felt the conviction and knew the crisis that they were in. Because if you are a traitor against the king, what do you expect should happen? 
if the one you killed is then enthroned? How secure are you feeling? It's exactly the kind of situation where we cry out, what shall we do? What can we do? And we need to ask, where are we in this story? What about us? Because on the one hand, all of us here can say without doubt that we're not them. I mean, we weren't there. None of you were in the crowd, as many of them no doubt were, shouting before Jesus was crucified, shouting, crucify him. Are we in a different situation though ultimately? Is our crisis less than theirs? And the the fact is it's just not. Ultimately, we are in their situation We weren't in the crowd that yelled crucify him, but we are of the crowd that yelled crucify him. In other words, we weren't there in location, but we've been there in orientation. We've been there in our attitude. We've been there in our disposition. We are no different ultimately than the people that were in the crowd yelling, crucify him. We have all rejected the true king. The motto of our mindset is not exactly like the mindset, mindset that these ancient people had, it's not exactly the same way that they rejected the king. It's a different flavor though of the same thing. But the motto of our contemporary mindset is what I feel is what I follow. What I feel is what I follow. That's the heartbeat of our culture. And it's the shape that our rebellion takes nowadays. What I feel is what I follow. No one has the right to rule me except me because being true to my feelings and my desires is the way to true life. That's what we think. In fact, we believe this so strongly that my feelings and my desires are the way to true life, that if, if someone tries to, to, to tell us that we're not allowed to be who we are, whatever that might mean, we actually claim they're harming us. They're opposing us. They're oppressing us by not letting us manifest and pursue and follow our desires. What I feel is what I follow, and we mean that deeply. And we mean that and believe that even though that motto that our desires and feelings are the way to true life, that motto is disproven every day all around us, again and again. It's disproven all around us. I mean, can you honestly say that you can trust your desires? Are your feelings really what you should follow? Can we say that when we, 
we can look around us and all of us know people, all of us see people who have clearly followed their feelings, have clearly followed their desires and, and where is it led? It's not led to good life. It's not led to true meaning. It's not led to fullness. It's led them to destruction. Now many of us are good at hiding that we, we follow feelings up to a point and we, we feel the destruction and we say, oh, I better pull back and we, we kind of hide that. We don't let anyone see it. Others have let it get out of hand so much that it just becomes obvious and public. There are countless people though around us that disprove the idea that our desires are trustworthy that our desires are a trustworthy way to life. But many of us, don't we think, well, I can do better though. I know how to shape my desire. My desires are better desires than those people. And, and you are doing a, a pretty good job on some level. You know, you got a decent job. You're holding things together. Your spouse doesn't hate you. Your kids are, you know, kind of behaved, right? I mean, everything is held together. Maybe there's a duct tape here and there. But you think, no, my feelings, my desires aren't, aren't killing me right now. But you miss the fact that ultimately they will. You can't follow your feelings because your feelings aren't the king of life. And in following your desires, you are not following the Lord of life that knows truly how to bring us to fullness of life. And that leads us to the most important fact of our situation, the fact that connects us directly to the people in our story and their crisis. It's the fact that by following our own way, we not only fail to find true life, it's not only ineffective, it not only obvious obviously can lead us down roads of destruction. But by following our own way, we are guilty of treason, like the people in the story, guilty of treason against the king of life. Not only does our way not work, but following our way means we are rebels against the one who is the true way of life. In other words, we, like the crowd in the story, are guilty of treason because following our way is just another way of saying, Jesus, I reject you as king. And so we with them need to ask the question, what shall we do? Because we're all rebels against this king. So what does Peter tell them to do? We've seen the people's conviction and crisis, and now following it, we hear Peter's call and comfort. And what, would, what does Peter tell them to do? What could they possibly do? What might they be expecting Peter to, to say? They might be expecting Peter to answer the question, what shall we do, by, by telling them a, a sacrifice that they could make. Maybe they thought that if they, if they would, if Peter would just tell them, as long as you live the rest of your life doing more good than bad, 
then you can make up for it and you can get back in the good graces of this king that you've crucified. If we surveyed most people today, that's the answer that they would give regarding what shall we do? If I had to guess what shall we do, I guess it's I'm gonna live my life as best I can, hoping the best I can is good enough and, and hopefully I do more good than bad. And I mean, that's Islam. And to many of us, Islam seems very strange. It's not actually that strange to most people. It, it's the same thing most people believe that as long as I do a little more good than bad, but Peter's call and comfort here is far more astounding than that kind of expected instruction. Peter calls them to repent and then comforts them with the king's amazing grace to those who have committed treason. Look with me at what Peter says. He says, first, repent. Repent. In other words, Peter is telling them to admit that they were wrong and that Jesus as king. It's really that basic. Admit you were wrong. Acknowledge that you were wrong when you crucified Jesus. And recognize that he's the true king. Repentance is often uh, muddled in a lot of people's thinking and and often repentance and teaching on repentance Uh, mistakenly makes repentance more than it actually is. At at its heart, repentance is a change of mind. That's what the word for repentance most basically means. Change your mind. Change your mind. The simple but crucial recognition that you were wrong and Jesus is king. In other words, repentance is not a commitment to make up for your wrong. A lot of people think that. Oh, repent, okay. There's that call for me to live the rest of my life doing more good than bad so I can get out of this situation. No, repentance is not a commitment to make up for your wrong. And it's not a call to get your life in order so that you can then move on to the next step. A lot of Christians think repentance It's just that. Repent means reform your life. Stop doing all of that sinning. Clean yourself up. Get better. And then once you've gotten better, once you've shown God that you're now ready to be loyal, then we can move on to the next steps. Then we can see about, about the salvation thing and forgiveness and all of that. No, repentance is not cleaning your life up in order to move on to the next step. It's a change of mind that can happen in an instant. Repent. Doesn't it make sense in this context? You crucified him. What shall we do? Well, first of all, acknowledge that was wrong. If you are one who is crying out, recognizing that was wrong, you're following this. Repent and recognize that Jesus is king. Now, does repentance lead, does it result in a changed way of life and and change in behavior? Absolutely. Changes of mind are like that. If you are a person that at one time 
and of course I'm not speaking autobiographically, if you are a person that at one time thought it was a good idea to eat an entire box of Oreos, an entire tray of Oreos, you know, in the span of 15 minutes, because why wouldn't it be? Two are fantastic. Why wouldn't 20 be even better? And, and, you, and you followed your desires, right? You followed your feelings and you ate that, that container of Oreos in 20 minutes and then those Oreos left you faster than they came into you on the other side of the patio. And in that moment, what do you do? You changed your mind. You decided, no, that's not a good idea. And for the rest of your life, again, not speaking autobiographically, but for the rest of your life, you didn't eat that many Oreos at once, except maybe a couple more times, but mostly you did not do that. So does repentance, does a change of mind affect the way that you live? Yes, but repentance itself is not the rest of your life living differently. This is so important. It's not the rest of your life living differently. Repentance is that decision, is that recognition. I was wrong. I see things differently now. Jesus is the true king. And what Peter is telling them is not first change your life and then we can, get, we can come back and move on to step two. Peter is saying, Acknowledge that Jesus is king and immediately come and receive his amazing grace. Immediately come and know his amazing grace. If you were wrong, acknowledge it and come to this king and receive his amazing grace. And Peter spells out that amazing grace. He magnifies it in three ways. Peter calls them to repentance and then comforts with the amazing grace of Jesus magnified in three ways. And the first way is this. Notice with me the simple but amazing fact that Peter guarantees these people, these traitors, that Christ will forgive even them. Repent, recognize you are wrong and come and immediately you receive forgiveness. He says, repent and be baptized. We'll talk about baptism in a minute. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus will forgive even them. The king they killed is a king who is willing and anxious to forgive them. Think of this. Jesus is willing to forgive the worst of sinners, the worst of traitors. And, and that's proven here, isn't it? By these people being invited to come and immediately find forgiveness. These people who literally and directly yelled, crucify him, are the first ones that are invited to come and receive forgiveness from Jesus. Now, as I said, are we any better ultimately than them? No, but what Jesus is proving here, what is, what is demonstrated here is that God's grace is for all of us. It doesn't matter how bad you are. It doesn't matter the degree of your treachery against Christ. It does not matter, and that's demonstrated here 
by God showing these people, the, the ones that directly said crucify him, inviting them to be the very first to come and immediately find forgiveness. What a beautiful picture of grace that is. It's driving home the fact that it doesn't matter how deep you feel your crisis is or how ongoing and awful your treason is. He is saying, come to me and be forgiven fully and forever. All of you, all of you come. That's emphasized by him in verse 39, isn't it? Where he says, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And the emphasis there is on you. For this promise is for you. You that I just said crucified him. You that I just said were the ones who directly and publicly betrayed him. You, this promise is for you. Even you and your children, and beyond that, for all who are far off, for everyone, the call is to come and be forgiven by this king. And then secondly, the, the amazing grace of Christ revealed here is, is it's magnified, the grace of Christ is magnified not simply in the fact that, that Christ is, is calling us to come and be forgiven, but in the fact that Jesus here wants us to be assured of his forgiveness. He wants us to be assured that his forgiveness is a, a sealed deal, that it's an authoritative guarantee, an unbreakable promise and that's why he calls them to be baptized. That's why he calls them to be baptized because he wants them to know my forgiveness is not a passing offer. It, it's not something I'll ever go back on. It's not something that I just maybe might give. My forgiveness is a sealed deal, an authoritative guarantee, and an unbreakable promise. So be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins in the name of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand what baptism really means. I want you to know what Peter is doing here. And this would be where you have, a, if you have a copy of the Bible, to look down with me at the, at the exact wording here. Peter says to them, notice, repent and be baptized, every one of you. We need to note that baptism is something we receive. Notice the, the phrasing there, be baptized. Be baptized, as in receive baptism. Don't go and baptize yourself. Don't achieve baptism, but be baptized. And I don't like throwing around the Greek and you know getting into grammar and all that kind of stuff, but this is a place where it's actually helpful the grammar here is in the passive. Be baptized means receive it. God is doing something to you, in other words, in baptism. It's not you achieving something. It's God acting towards you. And how is God acting towards you? 
in baptism. What are you receiving? You're receiving Christ's official guarantee. His official guarantee. It's much like uh, signet rings uh, were used in like medieval times. And I bring this up because, you know, none of us lived in medieval times, but we've seen the movies, right? So we're familiar with this kind of, this idea where the king writes out a proclamation and then what does he do? They melt wax and they pour it on there and the king stamps it with his ring. Or if you're really, really uber, super nerdy and you're still forgiven by God, but if you're really super uber nerdy, you may have gotten a Hogwarts signet ring. I don't know anyone that's done this. I don't know anyone that got this for their Christmas present years ago, but it may have happened. And you get, you got this, and so you write a letter to your friend and then you melt the wax and then you stamp it with, you know, hopefully Ravenclaw, if you're smart and you're on the right team. You seal it. That signifies that this is my authorization. This makes it official. And that's what baptism serves to do. Baptism is a visible sign. Like the the imprint on wax is a visible seal. Baptism is a visible sign that is Jesus's signet ring. It's him guaranteeing the promise. And that's why it's done. Notice the language. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. It's done in his name, meaning by his authority. You see what Peter is saying? Receive Christ officially guaranteeing forgiveness to you. Receive him putting his seal of this promise upon you. And what does it guarantee? Well, as we've, as we've already said, it guarantees Forgiveness. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And what this means is not that baptism forgives, it means Christ guarantees forgiveness by baptism. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, you could translate it in view, with a view to the forgiveness of sins. Meaning, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ regarding his promise to forgive your sins. That's what he's guaranteeing by the baptism. God wants you to know he means, he really does forgive. And he promises that, he guarantees that, he seals that as an unbreakable promise by his official seal of baptism on us. Now does this mean, does this mean that you if you haven't been baptized, then you haven't been forgiven. Is that what this means here? No. Peter could have said, trust in Jesus and you will be forgiven and then receive baptism. And that's essentially what he's saying here, but he could have put it exactly like that. He could have said, repent, change your mind, recognize you were wrong, and then trust in Jesus and you will be forgiven and then receive baptism. And we know he could have put it that way because later in Acts, that's how it's put. That's how the apostle Paul puts it. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 16. And I want you to hear the similarities of what we find in Acts 16 
with what we find in our passage. Listen to these words. The, the, uh, the jailer that had, that had imprisoned Paul and Silas, who was keeping them in jail, came to realize that, that these men were representatives of God, and notice what happens. Acts 16, beginning at verse 30. Uh, uh, then he brought them out, he, he, after realizing that they were representatives of God, the jailer brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's the exact same question, isn't it? What must I do? And notice Paul's response. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Trust and you'll be forgiven. Trust in the Lord and you will be forgiven. But then notice Paul goes on to say, uh, we read on that they were baptized and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Trust in the Lord and you will be saved. Peter is essentially saying, trust in the Lord, because to receive baptism is to acknowledge, I'm trusting you, Jesus, for this gift of baptism. And notice in both instances, though, even when Paul just uses the language of trust and you will be saved, what does he immediately do? He baptizes. He baptizes. Why is that? Why does Peter emphasize baptism? Why does the apostle Paul, after assuring him that you're saved just by receiving the gift, immediately baptize them because Jesus wants us to know that this gift is guaranteed. He wants us to be assured of it. We need to look to the guarantee of our forgiveness by this visible sign of baptism. God wants you to be assured that he means it. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That's how big God's grace is to the worst of traitors, he says, I will forgive you and I want you to know you're forgiven so much that I'm calling you to receive my seal, receive my guarantee that by my authority, I pronounce to you, your sins are forgiven. And that's how we're to respond to our baptism. You, in times of crisis, when when your conscience is is convicted, when, when you are feeling, what have I done? What must I do? How have I gotten myself into this again? You are to remember that you have been baptized, meaning you are to remember that Jesus has promised you, guaranteed to you the forgiveness of your sins. That's how gracious our king is. The king that we've rebelled against. And then lastly, as we close, I can't help but mention the last way the grace of Christ is manifested in this passage. We talked about it last week, so we won't spend a great deal of time this week, but it has to be pointed out. It's in the fact that in addition to this forgiveness, there is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter says to them, repent. And be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of his Holy Spirit. 
And that's an amazing gift because what it means is that Jesus amazingly doesn't only forgive traitors, he forgives traitors and immediately gives them new life. In fact, he immediately gives us heaven in down payment form with the spirit. Christ doesn't just forgive us as king, doesn't just immediately cancel the record of debt of the traitors, doesn't just say, I want you to be assured of this, receive the seal of baptism, but he also says, with that forgiveness, I'm not just putting you back into a place where you can now prove yourself and do good and maybe one day get to heaven. He doesn't just wipe out the debt, but then call on us to do enough good to get in finally one day when we die or he returns to heaven. No, he forgives us and says, with that forgiveness also comes heaven immediately. And that's what the gift of the spirit is. The gift of the spirit is the guarantee, the down payment of heaven. Paul says in Ephesians chapter one, I'm trying to be quick with this, but it's huge, isn't it? He says in Ephesians chapter one, in him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Isn't that just what, just what Peter had been saying? Come, receive forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul describes the gift of the Spirit this way who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Paul says the spirit is the guarantee, the down payment of our heavenly inheritance until we acquire full possession of it. In other words, the spirit comes and is a piece of heavenly life already granted to us while we wait to receive the full reality. What wondrous grace this king gives. You can be a traitor and moments later, changing your mind, recognizing you were wrong, recognizing that Jesus is the true king, come to him, receive forgiveness and the down payment of heaven all in an instant. And then have that sealed to you and guaranteed to you by baptism. This is the grace. This is the grace of our King. And I would urge any of you, if you have not done this, if you're in the place of recognizing, I have been rebellious against God. I've been rebellious against the true King of life. I would urge you to recognize that, to change your mind and to come to him, to come to him and receive that, to come to him and be baptized. And for everyone who has already experienced that baptism, remember what it means for you and remember what your gracious king has given to you, even you, the worst of traitors maybe. This is how he's loved you. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do so thank you for your amazing gift of grace to us that in the crisis of our sin, a rebellion, our treason against you. What we are to do is amazingly to come and receive. We are not to come and make up for, we are not to come and 
work our way out of. We are not to come and prove ourselves. We are to come recognizing our failure and then receive from you your guaranteed gift of forgiveness and the amazing gift of the Spirit, the down payment of heaven. We praise you for that and we do ask that you'd be at work in the hearts of of any here who have not yet come, that they would experience conviction, but also, Lord, hear the call and the comfort of the gospel. And may we who already know it, know it deeper, know it more, and, and desire to be more loyal to our king because this is how good he is. He is a king of such amazing grace. We thank you for it, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.